So I was cleaning out a closet the other day, just trying to slim down the inevitable accumulation, and I found my old Palm Pilot. Now, some of you don't even know what that is. Um, this was the, uh, the first sort of successful, what we called at that point PDA, not public display of affection, personal digital assistant. And it was, it was about the size of two packets of Pop-Tarts smacked together. Um, it was about as elegant looking, in fact. Um, it had this nub of an antenna. There's no phone attached. You um, could only get it to actually talk to your computer via a cable. Um, it had this black and white, well, it was really kind of a black and green screen. Um, you used a stylus. You remember those to tap the screen because it couldn't, you couldn't touch it. Um, and we thought it was the coolest thing ever. Um, I was an early adopter back then. I'm not anymore. Um, and then I took it and put it next to a friend's iPhone 5. And I thought, wow, what a difference. I mean, you can't fathom going back from an iPhone to a Palm Pilot, can you? I mean, you just wouldn't do it. Um, it is hard for us in 2012 to really understand the situation or to fathom the challenge of the recipients of this letter. Because to us, Christianity and Judaism are so unbelievably distinct that to go from Christianity back to Judaism to us would almost be like dropping from an iPhone back to a Palm Pilot. It's just, we, we can't imagine you actually would do that. Well, it wasn't always that way. And in fact, at the time this letter was written, it almost certainly was not that way. The temple still existed. There was still the situation where Judaism was a flourishing religion, a protected religion under the Roman Empire, one of only four. The temple, as it existed, sacrifices were still going. And initially, historically, most people who became Christians became Christians out of a Jewish background. It was only a bit later that Paul began to take the gospel throughout the known world to all the Gentiles. And so to anybody who existed at this point of time... Christianity was actually thought of as a sect, just a little piece of Judaism. And so it didn't feel like you were going from the iPhone to the Palm Pilot. It felt more like you were going from version 2.0 back to version 1.9. And 1.9 had been a really stable build. So to us, we can't imagine it. To the recipients of this letter, this was a very real possibility. And in light of that, the author of the book of Hebrews, throughout the book, tries to emphasize two things. One that the new covenant in Jesus Christ is different than the old covenant, and two, that the new covenant in Jesus Christ is superior to the old covenant. And in fact, the whole book and everything we've read so far is about Jesus. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. The author says, The point of what we've been saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. In other words, everything I've said so far is just about who Jesus is. And what the author is then going to do is to begin to illustrate that first in chapter 8 that we have today in two ways. By talking about two sanctuaries, an old one or an earthly one and a new one or a heavenly one. And then two covenants, an older covenant and a newer covenant. And we're going to look at those in order this morning. And as we do, what we are going to find out is that because the new covenant in Jesus Christ is so much greater than anything else, we just must not and cannot turn back from it. Because the new covenant in Christ is so much greater than anything else, 
We must not turn back from it. So let's try to look at those today. First, two sanctuaries. This is what the author does in verses 1 through 5. Your Bible may translate the word as sanctuary, or depending on the translation you're looking at, it may say tabernacle, or it may even say tent. The earthly sanctuary, tabernacle tent, is a reference to what was called the tabernacle that God instructed the Israelites to build in the book of Exodus once he had taken them out of the land of Egypt, out of slavery to the Egyptians. Now, in that regard, if you were to look back at Exodus, the second book of the Bible, and I were to ask you, what's the book of Exodus about? You might well say what I just said. It's about God freeing the Israelites from slavery and taking them out of the land of Egypt. And that's true as far as it goes. But if you look at the book of Exodus, it's 40 chapters long. And they get free from slavery in chapter 15. So the book's about more than just freedom from slavery. In fact, if you look at the book of Exodus, it very neatly falls into three sections. 15 chapters of freedom from slavery. 10 chapters, give or take, of God giving them the law. And then about 15 chapters, really 16, but about 15 chapters of God giving them the instructions of how they're to build the tabernacle. So the book of Exodus is really about freedom from slavery in order to be able to worship God in his law and in his sanctuary. And if you go through, if you've ever tried to read the Bible in a year, you always get told if you're going to do this that the wheels are going to come off in Leviticus. They usually actually come off when you hit the last 16 chapters of Exodus. Because God goes into unbelievable detail about this sanctuary. He tells you what the tent pegs are supposed to be made out of. He tells you how the curtains are supposed to be clipped together. Detail upon detail upon detail about how the tabernacle is to be built. Why do we care about the tabernacle? Well, according to the author of Hebrews, there are two reasons. The first reason is we care because it's the place that sacrifices were made. It's the place the priests came to make sacrifices. Look at verse 3. The author talks about the fact that one of the basic functions of a priest, and most importantly, the high priest in Israel, was to stand for the people in front of God, to come to the people and advocate, to intercede for them, to, to come to the Lord and say, they are sinful, they have sinned, and here are offerings that are made to take away their sin. But, and James will really develop this next week, so I won't go deeply into it, those offerings were always temporary. They had to be made again and again and again. This is what chapter 7, verse 27 had told us. And even beyond being temporary, this earthly sanctuary would have been off limits to Jesus as a priest. All the priests of Israel were from one tribe of the 12 tribes of nation, the tribe of Levi. And so the high priest who could go into the most holy place in this sanctuary, this traveling shrine, was of the tribe of Levi. Jesus was not. Jesus was from the tribe of Judah, and he would not have even been allowed to have the ministry in the most holy place that the Levites had. In other words, these are different sanctuaries. So one, it's a place where sacrifices are made. Two, according to the author of Hebrews, importantly, the earthly sanctuary was just a copy of and a shadow. Look at verse 5. This is just a copy and a shadow, the text says. In other words, it's like a picture or a photograph or, or some representation of the real sanctuary. Now, we need to understand, if it is a copy, that means it's actually a good thing. 
In a letter like this, where the author is going to such great pains to emphasize the benefits of the new covenant, it's easy to misunderstand and think that the point is that the old one was bad. Well, no, the the old one is a good thing because it's a copy. It's just limited. I mean, think of it this way. Your spouse is overseas. They're deployed or they're overseas for another reason. And you have a photograph of him or her. That photograph is a good thing, right? And you treasure it. You look at it. You love it. But when your spouse comes back from deployment, you don't keep hugging the photograph and ignore him or her. You throw the photograph down because now she's home or he's home and you hug them. So it's a copy and a shadow that's a good thing, but it's not the fullness. It's not what the sanctuary should be, could be, would be, is. Because the author goes on to talk about a heavenly sanctuary. The sanctuary, he says, where Jesus is serving. And there are two key points our author makes about this heavenly sanctuary to understand his point. First, it's superior. Verse 1, he says that Christ serves there sitting down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Now in the earthly sanctuary, the tabernacle and then the temple that replaced it when Israel settled down in the promised land, you had the Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place. Think Raiders of the Lost Ark here. The Ark of the Covenant was understood to be the footstool for God. The imagery was that the great God was sitting on a heavenly throne and his feet reached down and touched earth at one place and the Ark of the Covenant was where he rested his feet. In contrast, the author of the Hebrews says, in the Old Covenant, the priests serve around the footstool. Jesus sits beside on the right hand of the Father of God. It is a superior sanctuary. More than that, Jesus, in this superior sanctuary, offers a superior offering. Look back at chapter 7, verse 27. Unlike the other high priests of the earthly covenant, the earthly sanctuary, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. So this is not only a superior place, But there is a superior offering made in this heavenly sanctuary. So one, the heavenly sanctuary is superior. Two, the heavenly sanctuary is prior. It is the original. It is the one that was there. This is why verse 5, God says, Moses, go to such great pains to do exactly what I tell you. Because God wasn't making it up on the spot with Moses. The sanctuary already existed. And he was just giving Moses a plan, how to make a picture, a copy, a shadow. Now, by the way, this is not at all out of character with the ancient world. It was commonly understood that in an ancient temple, whatever your religion was, the the layout, the architecture of the temple, was meant to be a reflection of that God's heavenly throne room. Now, that doesn't need to freak you out about your Old Testament. It doesn't need to make you think that Christianity is the same as all other religions. It doesn't need to make you think Christianity ripped off other religions. It just says somebody didn't make this up thousands of years later. Your Bible fits exactly in the setting of the ancient world that it was made. And the author of Hebrews says, this is really the one that was already there. This is the real sanctuary. So to us it looks like the heavenly sanctuary is version 2.0. But really, it's always been the one that's there. It's just you haven't been able to see it. You've only seen the shadow until now. Think of it like like a tapestry. We went um, down to the National Cathedral with our daughters the other day to just let Callie walk around and see everything. 
and they had a big exhibit of tapestries. If you've ever looked at a really good artistic tapestry, if you look at the backside, there are knots everywhere, there are strings running across, and if you stare at the backside, you can sort of get what the picture is. Sort of. But then when it's flipped around and you see the front, you see the fullness, you see what the art of it was made to be. And once you've looked at the front, you'd never fathom going back and just staring at the back for the rest of the time because that's not the full... You've only seen a shadow. Now you see the fullness of the sanctuary. So there's a, an earthly sanctuary. There's a heavenly sanctuary that is superior precisely because it was prior. Now you've probably figured out at this point, the author's not really just talking about two sanctuaries or tabernacles. The, the sanctuary just stands for the covenant of which it's part. This is what we call metonymy. And second, then, the author goes and draws that out specifically, and from verses 6 through 13 says, let me talk about two covenants, an old covenant and a new covenant. The old covenant was the covenant of the law. It's what had happened in Exodus. After 15 chapters of freedom, or getting to freedom, the nation is now past the Red Sea, they are delivered from the Egyptians, and God turns around and gives them law. Now, that's a good thing. A nation needs laws. It doesn't function without it. And in fact, it is a great blessing in the book of Exodus that they get the law. They know what their God wants from them. They know how God views the world. It's very easy in our context in 2012 to think that the law is bad. But in the book of Exodus, the giving of the law is one of the greatest blessings that could possibly be given to God's people. Now, Romans 7 says that sin took the law and twisted it into a curse. But the giving of the law originally is one of the greatest blessings God can give. Again, it's a shadow. It's a copy. And as a shadow or copy, it is a good thing. It's just not everything. And in fact, in that context, writing to a bunch of believers who are tempted to slide back into that law and to think that it is the fullness of faith, The author, in fact, goes out of his way to emphasize the ways in which it is only a shadow. It is only a copy. It is insufficient. So he says in verse 7, he says, For if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. So the first covenant is insufficient. There's something wrong with it. Then it's essential for us to understand, to understand this passage, what was wrong with it. What is it? that was insufficient, that was wrong with the first covenant. And the answer might surprise you. Look at verse 8. But God found fault with the people and said. Look at verse 9. He says, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant. What the Bible says is wrong with the first covenant is not how it was made. It's not in the authorship of it. It's in who it was made with. The problem of the first covenant is not its essence. It's not that God messed up when he made it and didn't do it well enough. It's the people with whom it's made. The problem in the first covenant is not it itself. It's the fact that nobody will obey it. And in light of that, God had said, through Jeremiah the prophet, hundreds of years before, there is a time coming when I will make a new covenant, a different covenant, a covenant which will be qualitatively more and better than the covenant we've had. And the author of Hebrews, here quoting that prophet Jeremiah, is saying that covenant is what has come in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection and ascension to heaven. We are in that new covenant Jeremiah had promised, he says. And that new covenant is superior to the old covenant. How? 
Well, there are three things that are in this quote from Jeremiah that say it's superior. First, and they, have, they line up, verse 10, verse 11, verse 12. So verse 10. First, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. The first promise of difference of superiority in the new covenant is that the law could be written on our hearts. Now, it's not that people didn't memorize God's word and his law from time immemorial. But there is a sense in which the old covenant has a lack of moral power. Even at their best, when they wanted to go somewhere, when they wanted to follow the Lord, I mean, the epitaph over Israel written throughout the Old Testament is, they soon forgot. And so while the law is there in their minds, there is some sense in which in the new covenant there is a superiority where there's a moral ability, an ability to desire God's law in our hearts that had been missing in some way. I'm not sure I could even tease out for you exactly what way. But there is a fullness, an ability to love to do God's word, to love to live his way that is there that has not been there before. So coming, coming to be a believer, we have God's law here. Think of the greatness of that promise. You really can want different things. Now, I don't know about you all. Actually, I probably do. I don't sin because I don't know what to do. I sin because I want to sin. And the promise of the new covenant is you don't have to want the things that are bad for you. You don't have to want sin. You don't have to want to keep gossiping. You can want to grow. You don't have to want to stay anxious. You can want to have peace in God. You don't have to want to keep looking at all these things on the internet that you shouldn't. You can want God's way. You don't have to want to be at odds with your neighbor and fighting and bitter. You, you, can, be, you can want to grow in Christ. You really can be different. The law can be on your heart and my heart. Now look, you're still you. It's not going to happen overnight. It's going to happen over life. But we really can have different hearts. We really can want different things. We really can grow in our love of God and his ways. First thing. Second thing. We can know God personally. Verse 11. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord. Because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. It's a very interesting thing that the Old Testament was qualitatively different in this category. It is true that people still were responsible personally for how they followed God's word. And it is true in a sense that they could even still know the Lord personally. But there is a much greater emphasis in the Old Covenant that you knew the Lord through the priest, or you knew the Lord through the king, or you knew the Lord through some other mediator. There's a much greater sense in which you're a subject of the Lord and you're responsible to personally follow him, to love him, But there was a mediation there that is apparently and is truly absent in the new covenant where God can, God says, they will all know me from the least to the greatest. So for instance, I am not a priest, right? I am a pastor. Why? Because you don't need someone to stand between you and God anymore. He says, every one of them from the least to the greatest will know me. Now, how do we understand it? How do we think about it? Think about it this way. It doesn't work to think about it American. Take yourself mentally to a place where you have a king or a queen, Um, Don't go to Britain where the king or the queen pretty much does what the government tells them. Go to some monarchy where the monarch has absolute power, where he can say, he's dead, and they kill him. Bless her. And And there, think about if you come into the throne room. When you come in, you bow. You're responsible to obey that monarch. You're responsible to even care about that monarch. But everything you know about him or her 
is through other people. You've been told what his will is. You've been given the rules. You've followed. And so your, your connection there is one of obedience. It's one of being a subject, but it's not one of relationship in any noticeable way. Now, instead, imagine you grew up with him or her. And you come into the throne room. You know what? You still bow. He or she's still your king or queen. But there's a different relationship. There's a knowledge, a personal connection. The king looks at you and says, I'm so glad you came and I'm so glad to see you. Well, Christian, God looks at you and says, I'm so glad you came and I'm so glad to see you. They will all from the least to the greatest know me. And thirdly, what's superior about the new covenant? Last verse, verse 12, forgiveness of sins. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Now, God had always been a God who loved to forgive sins. Back in Exodus, when he gave the law, he said, I'm the God that loves to forgive and show mercy to thousands and tens of thousands. In other words, as high as you can count, I love to forgive sins. But now the forgiveness of sins is written into the very nature of the covenant. Remembering in the Bible is not mainly a mental thing. When God says, I don't remember, it's not like when you and I say, oh, I can't remember where I put my car keys or I can't remember what I came into the room to do, or I didn't remember to shift the laundry over. Remembering in the Bible is much more of a moral thing. When it says that God remembers someone's sins, it means by his justice he is required to judge those sins. And when God says he forgets sins, it doesn't mean he somehow doesn't know they occurred. It means that God willfully, by grace, chooses not to hold our sins against us and in the blood of the covenant to forgive us our sins. So now written into the very nature of this new covenant is forgiveness of sins. Now, why do we care? Why do we care? I dare say, I think I said this two weeks ago, but let's say it's stronger, or at least as strongly. I dare say that almost no one in this room has the temptation that the original readers of this letter had. Their temptation was to slide back from their Christianity into Judaism. Because that was their background. That's from where they had come. And it's what still appealed to them. In fact, Christianity had appealed to them precisely because of how Jewish it was. That it made sense of all the rituals, the washings, the things they did. It made sense of the Passover. It made sense of all these themes in their scriptures that couldn't quite tie together. So they were tempted to slide right back into Judaism from which they'd come. And 99% of this group, that's not your temptation because it's not your background, nor mine. But I dare say we are quite tempted to turn back. Not to turn back to Judaism, with rare exception, but to turn back to the place from which we came, whether that's a secular place or a religious place. Because though we do not have the temptation to go back where the Hebrews went, we very much have the temptation to turn back from this new covenant with all its fullness, with knowing God personally, with having his law written on our hearts, with having forgiveness of sins, to something that is just a shadow of it. And let me try to outline just a few ways that might happen. First, well, let me actually ask it this way. What shadow of the gospel did you have before you really met Jesus? If you have, maybe you're clinging to a shadow right now. What shadow did you have? You know, if you grew up in Bible Belt Christianity, for instance... You know what this is like if you grew up there. The Christianity is a mile wide and an inch deep. Everybody's a Christian because granddaddy was a Christian. And if you grew up in that, Christianity was a culture as much as, or probably far more, 
than it was the new covenant with the fullness of forgiveness of sins, God's law written on our hearts, God looking at you and saying, friend, I'm so glad you came. And if you are clinging to a shadow, it is so easy to slide back into that shadow. Or maybe, in fact, it wasn't that. Maybe you grew up with Christianity as a set of rules and regulations. It's about obedience. You don't have to grow up in the Bible Belt to get that one. You know, it commonly happens to people who've been in religious schools, for instance. Christianity is all about following the rules. Well, you know what? Rules are good things. But they're just a shadow. They're hardly the fullness of a personal relationship with Christ who loves you as a friend. But it's so easy to fall and slide back into your Christianity just be you follow the rules. Or maybe your Christianity is looking good at church on Sunday morning. You know, get there, put on a good face. Who cares that you had a fight in the car on the way to church? Get it together. If your Christianity is a social system or social appearances, it's a shadow at best, maybe worse. Or maybe the way you came to Christianity is the appeal that it's an intellectual system. This makes sense. Maybe someone who is a Christian whooped you in a debate one time. Maybe you were looking for some way to hold to some absolutes in this world and you found it in Christianity because you found out that there is absolute truth here. And you know what there is? But true principles are still a shadow. It's not the fullness of a relationship with Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. But it will be so easy to slide back into your faith just being about principles and rules and dogged obedience to those rules. Or, you know, maybe... Maybe your idea about Christianity is that it's just a great feeling because I'm just an emotional person and I love the feeling I've got in worship. Well, there is a great feeling in worship. There's nothing more fun in the world. But a relationship with Jesus is about more than just a good feeling. And it will be so easy to just slide back into a Christianity. It's just about how I feel. Now, where did you come from? Let's not, let's not kid ourselves. We came from somewhere to Christ and that somewhere, that shadow has some things that are really appealing. And if you haven't, you will be tempted to slide right back into it. But again, my goodness, if you have the picture of your spouse and he just got home from being deployed, you don't hang on to the picture and ignore him. You throw the picture down and you embrace Jesus. So may we do that all our lives. Let's pray. Father, may we not cling to things that are only shadows of the goodness that you have for us. May we not cling to things that would actually keep us from the best, that would keep us from the fullness of relationship. Lord, if we've been clinging to those shadows and have never come to the fullness of faith in Jesus with all that you say, it could be different than anything we've ever known. I pray we would, that you would work in our hearts and pick in our hearts and leave us unsatisfied until we know fully what the gospel is. And when we have, Lord, may we never turn back. May we never slide away from you thinking that we're still staying there, but in fact turning back to just the shadows. May we always live in the fullness and blessing of Jesus Christ, our Lord, Savior, and friend. And we pray it in his name. Amen.